The views and opinions expressed by contributors on the Spoon River Gothic podcast are their own and do not necessarily reflect the position of the host. Material heard on the Spoon River Gothic podcast is intended for adult listeners. This podcast deals with mature topics that may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. This is Spoon River Gothic, narrative of a double homicide. You can bet they aren't passing out free Donald Bull t-shirts in Canton today. And if he were to flee up Route 24 with a gun to his head, the roar from the crowd might be, shoot. Peoria Journal Star, July 14th, 1994. As the local media began to stir up public sentiment in the dawn of the Donnie Bull trial, the anonymous author of the opinion piece went on to admit, we have no idea how strong the evidence is and acknowledge that it is possible that Bull has been wrongly accused. But the rolling ball had already nonetheless began to plow over that constitutional guarantee, innocent until proven guilty. And one even begs the question if that word shoot was undoubtedly a sublime charge for vigilante justice. The author questions if the reader is human, human enough to be anything but furious, suggesting a sexual assault long before anything of such had been even remotely proven. And with his cries to punish Donnie Bull, the author threw Donnie's past into the limelight. Donnie's 1991 acquittal, the jury might wish they had, in fact, reached a different conclusion. Still, the author briefly steps back, but there's no evidence of system failure here. The author nonetheless, in the final paragraph of the article states, So let's hope the system works now. Let's hope Bull gets a fair trial and justice is done. Let's hope it takes place without the public picking of sides that the O.J. Simpson case has inspired. And most of all, let's remember who are the victims, and not misplace our sympathies. It sounds awfully like the author is insisting that regardless of who might be strung up for these two tragic deaths, innocent or not, could and should never be considered a victim. Not when chosen rightly so by the community to serve as scapegoat. And that while he hopes public picking of sides does not take place, what is the author doing but stirring up the public with inflammatory words against a man who, according to the U.S. Constitution, is still an innocent man? Lastly, just what in the author's mind is their sense of justice? And as the mentioned hopes of a fair trial, how can two single things correlate? Fair trial and a fired-up public sentiment that shall no doubt infiltrate the jury box. So let's hope the system works now, the author states yet previously mentioning that there was no evidence of any system failure in the 1991 case. So I ask, how can an unbroken system work more correctly? What is the author suggesting? That the system indeed should work with prejudice? That the system shoots first and asks questions later? When I question much of the motive behind this opinion piece, I heed the author's advice and remember who the victims are and not misplace my sympathies. Still. I feel the author fails to recognize that any American citizen whose constitutional rights have been violated is in fact a victim. 
This is not to make a predetermination as to the victimhood of Donnie Bull. It is simply a willingness to go beyond public sentiment and to logically and skillfully dissect and analyze the evidence of not only the case and the investigation, but of the trial. And as you know, every trial begins with a pre-trial and with the foolish notion to actually step back and ask questions before shooting, before even brandishing, let alone loading the gun. I inquire, did the system work? Not subjectively nor prejudiced, but objectively and fairly, unbiased. Was justice done on all accounts for every unfortunate soul involved, victim and accused? And at the end of the day, just maybe we might have a broader, yet more accurate scope of just who the victims of this trial were and not misplace our sympathies. So ladies and gentlemen, let us begin with that fateful day, June 30th, 1994, when the warrant was signed by Judge John R. Clerken and issued in Lewistown, Illinois, for the arrest of Donald R. Bull, who sat in Big Muddy Correctional Center. The offense, seven counts of first-degree murder, two counts of concealment of a homicidal death, and one count of aggravated arson. The amount of bail, $500,000. A deputy sheriff placed Donnie Bull under arrest. A few days later, the front page spread of the Canton Daily Ledger, an image of the 31-year-old Donnie, hands and feet shackled by handcuffs and chains, in a short-sleeve Oxford shirt, meaty forearms flexed, buff with a full goatee, walking away from the Fulton County Courthouse, flanked by State Department of Corrections officers and a Fulton County Sheriff's deputy, Roger Lindsay. After 18 months of gossip, rumor, and investigation, efforts to find the man officials believed to be guilty of the January 1993 arson and double homicide was finally being paraded as caught and captured and displayed for public sentiment to take its course in deciding if the community also agreed that such individual was guilty as charged. That same day, July 28, 1994, Peoria Journal Star headlines read, Inmate, murder suspect requests new judge. Chief judge says he'll appoint someone new to hear double murder case. Lewistown. Prison inmate Donald R. Bowl appeared for a second time on murder charges in Fulton County Circuit Court Wednesday, requesting a new judge and asking for a shower and shave before his next hearing. Bull asked to his attorney that Circuit Judge Charles H. Wilhelm be removed from his case, alleging that Wilhelm was prejudiced against him. Ninth Circuit Chief Judge Richard Ripple said he would appoint a new judge to hear the case. Under Illinois statute, anyone charged with a Class X felony or any other crime punishable by death or life imprisonment is entitled to twice substitute the judge hearing the case if he believes the judge is prejudiced. Bull's lawyer, Thomas Moss of Farmington, wouldn't discuss the defense's reasons for having Wilhelm removed. Wilhelm sentenced Bull to five years in prison in 1983 after Bull pleaded guilty to aggravated battery for choking his sister-in-law. Eight years later, in 1991, Wilhelm issued an order of protection against Bull, barring him from having contact with his estranged wife. His wife said at the time that Bull pushed her, forced her to have sex, and threatened her and her family 
Bobol was acquitted that same year of charges of raping the woman. Sent to prison last fall for choking and beating a Canton woman, Bull is now incarcerated in Pontiac Correctional Center. He had been serving his eight-year sentence in Medium Security Big Muddy River Correctional Center in Southern Illinois, but was moved to maximum security Pontiac after being charged with the double slayings. Moss asked Ripple to order Bull be allowed to shave and shower prior to his next hearing, which is yet to be scheduled. He informs me that he has not been able to shower since Friday, Moss said. Ripple refused. On August 9th, the Kenton Daily Ledger stated in the four-year information section that Judge William D. Henderson had been appointed to the Donald Bull case. Along with the day's weather, tonight, increasing cloudiness, low from 55 to 60, east wind 5 to 10 miles per hour, and the lottery numbers 5, 20, 21, 25, 28, with an estimated jackpot of 16 million. And as the pre-trial moves swiftly along, September 29th, judge orders writing sample from defendant. Prosecution has letter it says helps prove Bull assaulted woman. Lewistown. On Wednesday, Circuit Judge William Henderson granted Fulton County State's Attorney Ed Danner's motion that Bull be ordered to supply handwriting samples to be compared to a letter that the state intends to present as evidence. As for the letter, written to a friend of Bull's sometime after the slains, I believe the letter speaks to a sexual relationship that will support the charge that Bull sexually assaulted Tompkins, Danner said, before he was interrupted by an objection from defense attorney Moss. The counsel is not on the stand, and he is not under oath, Moss said. It would be inappropriate for Danner to reveal what the letter said, Moss added. Henderson then took the letter into his chambers, after which, over Moss's objection, he ruled in favor of the motion. The letter we're talking about here doesn't help prove or disprove any of the facts at issue, Moss said. It may serve only to excite the prejudices of the jury. Ladies and gentlemen, if I might pause here a moment. I cannot help but take note of the paradox between Danner's statement that the letter confirming a sexual relationship between Donna and Donnie proved the sexual assault occurred on this date, and later in closing arguments, stating that Donna would basically have wanted nothing to do with a man like Donnie and that any mentions by Donnie of such a relationship, even in a letter to his close friend, would have been an outright lie. While Danner could not have seen its blossoming at the time, this contradiction should be noted as the prosecution bends light around any obstacles that might appear along the path it seeks to illuminate. This is not to formulate a bias against the state's case, but simply articulate a question. Ladies and gentlemen, if you were in Donnie's shoes, or any shoes of any of the accused at any time, would you be comfortable with such honed relativity in an ideally objective court of law? Moving along, as winter had once again rolled around, and the steamed hot cells of penal institutions across the nation turned shivering cold, on November 10th, Defense Attorney Thomas Moss typed up a transfer request on behalf of Donnie Bull under the firm's letterhead, which read, I am the court-appointed lawyer for Donald R. Bull, who is charged with murder in Fulton County case number 94-CF-99. Mr. Bull, whose inmate number is N38170, has been incarcerated in Statesville since approximately the 8th of this year. 
Mr. Bull does not believe his inmate status requires that he be confined in a maximum security facility, and he has requested a transfer to a medium security facility closer to his home, preferably the Illinois River Prison in Canton. The problem with Mr. Bull's incarceration in Statesville is that it is approximately 100 miles away from my office and about a six-hour round-trip drive. In addition, Statesville has been on lockdown for weeks and Mr. Bull has not been permitted to call me. This is a case that may result in a death penalty. I need to be able to meet and communicate with my client in order to prepare his defense. I would appreciate it if you would give immediate attention to Mr. Bull's request for a transfer. Thank you. December 13th, a crisp 25 degrees. Dear Mr. Moss, be advised at the present time, Donald Bull has been recently denied consideration of placement at a medium security facility based upon further observation needed. He may contact his counselor six months from now and ask for a reconsideration of a transfer. I trust this is a response to your inquiry. So ladies and gentlemen, thus far into Donnie's potential death penalty trial, his defense preparation will go forth burdened by a weeks long lockdown which prevents him from using the telephone to speak with his lawyer, as well as that six hour drive from Mr. Moss impending Mr. Moss from visiting his defendant in person. And then Mr. Moss files a motion to disclose a conflict of interest, seeing he has represented a key witness, one out of a list of 350 persons, including several Moss had previously represented. Although Donnie signed a waiver indicating he did not himself recognize any conflict, Moss emphasized that if such a key witness were to testify against Donnie, it would be his job to attempt to impeach the credibility of the witness. And since lawyer-client knowledge is privileged, Moss could be faced with the conflict of whether to respect his loyalty to a former client or Donnie. On December 19th, the headlines read, Bull's attorney removed due to conflict of interest. Judge Henderson stating, Given the gravity of the case and the extreme mischief of the proceedings, of the potential conflict ballooning into an actual conflict in the court of litigation, I must reluctantly disqualify Mr. Moss from further representation of Mr. Bull in this case. And like that, Thomas Moss was out from under what was most likely the most challenging case of his career, along with a persistent and grueling six-hour drive to Statesville and back. The name of the supposed witness, Moss once represented, was never released, and Donnie was out of a lawyer. Meanwhile, on the same page of the Journal Star that day, computer error labels judge delinquent. Springfield. Timothy Zweed was angry that state computer records listed him as being delinquent on child support payments for his two daughters. If word is out that I'm a deadbeat on child support, I'm a little bit miffed because that affects my reputation, said Swede, a juvenile court judge from Cook County. December 20th. Court appoints Macomb attorney to represent Bull. Dean Stone was appointed by Circuit Judge William Henderson to represent the suspect after the judge asked Bull whether he would like to hire his own attorney. 
Bull at first said that he was not sure whether he planned to hire his own counsel and added, I want a court-appointed attorney, not a public defender. Which is it? asked Henderson. Donnie seemingly confused that they were one and the same. I've asked for a court-appointed attorney, Bull replied. And on New Year's Eve, Donnie's new attorney, Dean Stone, signed his first affidavit on Donnie's behalf. The affidavit stated that, one, he is in fact the attorney of Donnie. Secondly, that it is critical that he is able to have regular and confidential communication with his client, and also that, up to this date, January 31st, 1994, he has only been able to meet with his client on one occasion at Statesville Correctional Center, and that he had requested a private interview room to meet with Donnie in order to protect attorney-client privilege, but that he was denied and forced to meet with Donnie in an open visiting room with other people in the immediate area. Stone also, like Moss, stated that it would be impossible to properly represent Donnie because of the distance from Statesville to his office in Macomb, and that if his client was in a prison closer to Macomb in Lewistown, it would be easier for him and Donnie to properly prepare his defense. Mr. Stone also filed a motion to produce defendant, asking the court to order the defendant to such a facility within a 50-mile radius of Lewistown or Macomb. He stated that Donnie had been incarcerated at Big Muddy River Correctional Facility, but that when the charges of a homicide were filed against him, he was transferred to the maximum security facility in Pontiac, adding that Donnie had never been a discipline problem for the Department of Corrections. But regardless, Statesville was currently on lockdown. Because of this, he was unable to communicate by telephone with his client. Also, Donnie had no access to the law library, nor any private access to speak with his attorney. That the sole reason for Donnie being placed in the maximum security prison was due to those pending charges, and that seeing he was presumed innocent until proven guilty, and that the state bared the burden of proving that the defendant was guilty of proving the charges against him, and that Donnie was not required to prove his innocence, that Donnie was being treated as being convicted of the charges, violating his constitutional rights of the presumption of innocence and due process of law. Mr. Stone emphasized that Statesville is approximately 200 miles from Macomb and 160 miles from Lewistown. And Donnie, unable to communicate with his lawyer, is being deprived of his liberty, as guaranteed by the Constitution's Fifth Amendment. Donnie was being denied the effective assistance of counsel for his defense, violating the Sixth Amendment. Stone stated that the defendant, Donald Bull, felt he was being denied effective assistance due to his present incarceration at Statesville, as did his former attorney, Thomas Moss, and himself, Dean A. Stone. In that scene, Donnie was being charged with the most serious of all possible criminal charges and had the possibility of death penalty being sought by the state. That the action of putting Donnie in the maximum security prison 200 miles from his counsel without telephone privileges, that it was impossible for the defendant and the defense to adequately review, prepare, and defend against the serious and untrue allegations against him, as stated by Stone. He also wrote that there are three medium security facilities within 50 miles of Lewistown and Macomb, namely Henry Hill, Galesburg, Illinois River in Canton, and Western Illinois in Sterling. He stated that it would be in the interest of justice and fiscal economy to order that the defendant be placed in a prison closer to his office, and that the defense of the case was based upon his effective communication between counsel and the client, and that such communications were impossible because of Donnie's current placement in Statesville. Thus far, ladies and gentlemen, it appears that Donnie's swift and fair trial was off to a rather rocky start.
As spring rolled around once more, along with Donnie's arraignment hearing on March 22, 1995, newspapers rolled out with the headline, Double Execution Nears and Joliet, for two men who had been waiting on death row for 17 years, while their lawyers filed one appeal after the other, and time was running out for the convicted killers, who were scheduled to die by lethal injection early that very day at the State Correctional Center. On the lower half of the page, the Peoria Journal Star read, Double murder suspect pleads innocent. Former Canton man faces 10 counts in death in related fire. Lewistown. The man accused of murdering a young woman and her three-year-old daughter in Canton two years ago pleaded innocent Monday in Fulton County Court. In the courtroom Monday, Judge William Henderson read bold the 10 counts against him and the possible sentences for each. Fulton County State Attorney Ed Danner would not say if he plans to seek the death penalty for Bull, but he said if Bull is found guilty of both murders, only two sentences are possible under Illinois law, life imprisonment without parole or death. A mugshot of Donnie filled the center of the page, his hair unwashed and messy, mustache grown over his lip, and his cheek and neck filled out from the sudden sedentary lifestyle and poor quality of food he had met in Statesville. The judge set a motion hearing for April 17th, and Mr. Stone, undoubtedly concerned with proper preparation for the case, stipulated that the defense was not demanding a speedy trial. On April 10th, a subpoena was issued commanding Mr. David A. Metzer Bureau of Forensic Sciences, Illinois State Police Forensic Science Laboratory, Springfield, Illinois, to appear to testify and to bring any and all notes, research notes, documents, telephone messages, correspondences, analysis results, research results, test results, reports, supplemental reports, letters, and any other written documents regarding or pertaining to Donald R. Bull, and signed by Fulton County Circuit Clerk Mary C. Hampton. At Donnie's motionary hearing, his lawyer, Dean Stone, filed 11 motions on behalf of his client, as follows. 1. Motion to compel the prosecution to disclose whether it will request a death penalty if Donald Bull is convicted of murder. 2. Motion for certain orders regarding pre-child publicity. 3. Motion to compel disclosure of discovery materials. 4. Motion to provide funds for investigative assistance. 5. Motion to provide funds for an arson expert. 6. Motion for an expert pathologist. 7. Motion to provide funds for a DNA expert. 8. Motion to change venue. 9. Motion to suppress statements. 10. Motion to suppress evidence of rings and key. 11. Motion to suppress evidence of blood. Concerning the disclosure of the intent to seek death penalty, Dean Stone stated that the prosecution must disclose whether it will request a death penalty if Bull is convicted of the murders and that Donnie wished to attach the constitutionality of the death penalty. If the death penalty is sought, he wrote, the defense will need to litigate numerous procedural issues indigenous to a death penalty case. Fourth Amendment rights require the defense to be advised at the earliest possible time prior to the guilt trial of whether the state plans to seek the death penalty. Concerning the defense's motion to suppress evidence or potentially incriminating statements that were made in Fulton County Jail on March 25, 1993, on December 20, 1993, stating that Donnie had no lawyer present at the time that the statements were obtained, and that they were obtained unlawfully and involuntarily, and that the officers deliberately misrepresented evidence and facts obtained up to that point in the investigation. Also, Donnie's rights were violated, as at the time he was taken into custody, he had not been read his Miranda rights, nor had Donnie waived them. 
and the statement was obtained after Donnie chose to remain silent, after he had requested a lawyer, and that he had not knowingly or intendedly waived his right to have counsel present. In turn, Donnie's 5th, 6th, and 14th Amendment rights were violated, and Mr. Stone feared that the state would seek to introduce those statements by the defendant at trial. Additionally, Donnie had requested court-appointed counsel on March 24th, the day prior, but it was not until the following day after the interview that the court had appointed a lawyer to Donnie. Therefore, those statements should be suppressed in court, stated Stone, due to the misconduct by the police. Concerning the disclosure of discovery materials, Stone stated that all evidence must be made available to the defense, and that many of the materials still had not been provided to the defense, including photographs from the Canton Fire Department, presently in the state's attorney's possession, nor did he have copies of various audio tapes made by the Canton Police Department, nor a copy of the CPD logbook, all of which the prosecution was required by law to provide the defense. Concerning funding expert witnesses, though more than 5,200 in fees for legal services already had been awarded by the court to Stone, and the court had already paid 6,900 to Moss before being removed, additional potential expenses to Fulton County would include payments for expert witnesses requested by Stone since Donnie was indigenous and residing in prison. In addition to the right to counsel, Donnie had the right to confront witnesses against him, to present evidence, and equal protection under the law. The state had been assisted by agents of the state police, Fulton County Sheriff's Department, the Police Department, the State Fire Marshal Office, the United States Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, expert doctors who performed autopsies, and other investigative state and federal agencies. Also, Stone had hired Al DeStacio, a retired L.A. police detective who would help investigate and prepare the defense case. The state was to present 300 witnesses potentially, and Stone had yet to determine who should be interviewed and investigated by the defense. Stone could not ethically testify in response to witness testimony, so DeStacio would need to assist him for $20 an hour, not exceeding a total of $800. Stone also planned to hire and pay up to $300 for each of the following persons an arson expert, an expert pathologist, and a DNA expert. Considering the suppression of evidence, the state's attorney had waited until one day before Donnie's indictment on March 25, 1993, to acquire a search warrant to obtain blood from Donnie's face, body, clothes, and photos of his face, body, and clothes from Donnie's 1991 trial. Evidence from a prior case should not be allowed in the present case, Stone wrote. On June 15th, new blood and hair samples were also granted, and the state had requested a continuance so the DNA could be tested. He also stated that certain items were unlawfully seized by the Illinois State Police from the defendant's resident, including a gold ring with a clear stone, a gold ring with a black setting, and a key. Stone stated that Donnie had a reasonable expectation of privacy in the items seized from the residence he shared with his girlfriend at the time, Rochelle Hillmeyer. At the same time, Donnie was locked up in the Fulton County Jail and was not present in order to grant a search to investigators. And at the time of the unlawful search and seizure, Donnie was not violating any laws and Stone stated that the agents were conducting a fishing expedition and had no justifiable grounds to invade Donnie's privacy in private areas and seize items herein. Mr. Stone further explained why the search and seizure was unlawful. Exigent circumstances did not exist for the search without a warrant. The property seized was not in plain view because the objects were not themselves in plain view, nor were they discovered inadvertently and the incriminating nature of the objects was not immediately apparent to the viewer. The search violated Donnie's reasonable expectation of privacy. 
The search was conducted without probable cause because there was no nexus between the alleged criminality and the information upon which the search was based. The search was illegal because there was no custodial arrest. The search area was not incident to arrest. The search was illegal because the items were in a closed container. The search was without the consent of the defendant. And the search was without a search warrant. Stone stated that Donnie's 4th and 14th Amendments of the Constitution were violated, which prohibits reasonable search and seizures, and that Donnie was deprived of liberty and property without due process. And Stone stated that he feared the state would seek to introduce the item seized during trial. About the blood evidence. Mr. Stone stated that taking Donnie's blood was nothing more than a pretext to obtain information or attempt to obtain incriminating evidence against the defendant who had not yet been charged in a criminal case that the state lacked probable cause or justifiable grounds or means to obtain Donnie's blood and that doing so was merely a pretext to use Donnie's blood against him in the uncharged homicide case and that he believed the state would seek to introduce the evidence pertaining to, relating to, and based upon the illegal obtaining of his blood during the trial. As for the change of venue, residents in Fulton County are so prejudiced against the defendant, Stone wrote, he cannot receive a fair trial due to the excessive publicity in the county, the Peoria area, and central and western Illinois. Even before his arrest, aspects of the murders were widely publicized. After the arrest, extensive publicity attended all phases of pretrial proceedings, including court documents, filed copies of newspaper articles from the Daily Ledger, Peoria Journal Star, and Macomb Journal. Lastly, Stone suggested the trial be held in Macomb, Carthage, or some other place where no apprehensions exist that his client cannot receive a fair and impartial trial. Danner's August 24th counter-response stated, The state responded to the motion of discovery materials by supplying the defense with the following materials of evidence it had until that point been holding back. 187 photos of the interior and exterior of the crime scene. 16 autopsy slides of Donald Tompkins. 15 autopsy slides of Justine Tompkins. 12 photos of Rochelle Hillmeyer's vehicle. 24 photos of the crime scene, some including the victims at the scene. Six Polaroid photos of Justine Tompkins taken at Springfield Hospital. Tompkins' family home videos depicting the victims before their deaths. An audio tape of an interview of David Haynes conducted by Bob Newton on February 3, 1993. An audio tape of the interview of Pauline Newcomb conducted by Marty Boten and Larry Nickel on January 28, 1993. An audio tape of a January 13, 1993 phone call of David Haynes to the Canton Police Department an audio tape of a phone conversation between Chris Chester and David Ayers on March 28, 1994, an audio tape of the interview of David Nell on March 11, 1994, conducted by Don York and Ken Kedzer, one copy of a weekly planner of Donna Tompkins, one copy of an address book of Donna Tompkins, one copy of a purple note containing a safe combination, one copy of an evidence activity log as supplemented by the narrative of David Ayers, one copy of combined insurance company materials relating to Justine Tompkins. One copy of a letter to Donna signed Love Rod. Aerial photos taken by photographer Dave Lewis. 
13 photos of the previous victim of Donald Bull, Donna Roop, and enlarged ring photographs. Dana requested a full evidentiary hearing be held on a motion to suppress evidence involving rings and a key. He wrote they were recovered legally. The occupant, being Rochelle Hillmeyer, he stated, had the authority to consent to, and did consent to a search and recover lawfully due to the consent of a third-party occupant of the common residence. Danner asked the court to deny Stone's motion. Danner contended that blood was obtained by a valid court order issued following a supplemental motion for discovery filed by the state. The motion was reasonable under the circumstances of the former case and met constitutional limitations and probable cause requirements of a constitutional court rule. He also stressed blood evidence obtained from a previous case because no authority was provided to support arguments to the contrary in Stone's motion. On change of venue, Danner pointed out a trial is generally held in a county where the offense occurred, pointing out specific cases from which judges found the proof of potential harmful publicity within a community prejudiced that it was determined that each case nonetheless must be judged on its own facts and that the examination of evidence during jury selection the defendant would receive a trial by a fair and impartial jury. On a motion to reveal its intentions on the death penalty as soon as possible, Danner asked the court to enter an order allowing the state to wait to announce its specific intentions about seeking the death penalty before the jury selection process. August 25, 1994 Prosecutor silent about death penalty a judge Thursday refused to order prosecutors to say whether they intend to seek the death penalty for Donald R. Bull. Bull, 32, was transported to Lewistown from Pontiac Correctional Center on Thursday for a hearing on several pretrial motions. Bull's attorney, Dean Stone, asked Circuit Court Judge William Henderson to compel prosecutors to say whether they will ask for the death penalty should Bull be convicted, knowing that early on would expedite the trial. Stone argued, saying if and when the case becomes a death penalty case, Stone would have to file new motions, including a request for a second defense attorney. But Henderson agreed with Fulton County State Attorney Ed Danner that the state wasn't legally required to disclose its intentions this soon. However, Danner agreed to Stone's request that the county pay for a private investigator, a pathologist, experts, and a DNA analysis in Bull's defense, but not to exceed a cost of $1,700. Bull is considered indigenous. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, I quote Miss Ahrens from the previous episode. Always in such cases, the defendant is poor and his family is without political influence in the community. Perfect socioeconomically deprived fodder for the prosecutor's discriminatory judicial grist mill. It makes you wonder, ladies and gentlemen, given the abuse young Donnie had endured by the hand and belt of his drunk, gambling, womanizing father. If Don Sr. might have run for sheriff, seeking some sort of atonement for his son, a Hail Mary of sorts, to right those past wrongs. In the least, they had led him to be the type to have easily allowed crosshairs to be drawn on his back. But what type is that? What type was Donnie? In addition to his social status, he had a troubled past. He lacked smarts. He had a social dysfunction. He was awkward, shy. 
and his often tight-lipped silence in the company of others drew contempt, if not fear, from the community around him on a daily basis. That type, Donnie's type, not only the quiet type people are weary of, but Donnie was indignant. Society does make mistakes, and Donnie was society's mistake. And Donnie was not only his father's mistake, but he was society's mistake. Let us juxtaposition those words Miss Aaron's went on to write in her book, Welcome to Hell, with Donnie and his case and his trial. By definition, these people on America's death row constitute a specific class. Even though they differ ethnically and religiously, they have one or more of these areas of deprivation in common. Or they wouldn't have a death sentence. America is killing the economically deprived, those of the lower socioeconomic strata, Killing the insane, killing the retarded, killing the illiterates, killing the emotionally crippled, killing the childishly immature and mentally underdeveloped, killing the socially disenfranchised and the politically powerless of our society, killing those so criminally abused as children that they never had a chance to develop normally to a well-balanced human being. Their minds were stunned, twisted, and mentally and emotionally destroyed as children. And once again, ladies and gentlemen, remaining objective as possible, I feel it is important to state that in Donnie's case, quote, when a deprived person of this lower socioeconomic class has to defend himself against the state's imposition of the death sentence as a pauper or near pauper, this person is stripped of the socially recognized necessities when in conflict with the awesome, overwhelming power of the state judiciary. This defendant has neither powerful relatives nor political influence to any degree nor the money necessary to pay for a defense strong enough to avoid the death sentence. Yes, Donnie was to be awarded a pathologist, experts, and a DNA analysis for his defense, but that cost was not to exceed $1,700. And given that his father failed his campaign for sheriff, Donnie was naked, devoid of armor of social and financial power, and position necessary to survive an encounter with the inexonerable machinery of the state. The state's power is most awesomely displayed when wielded against a social pauper who stands alone in this conflict, who must piteously appeal to the state, the very one trying to kill him, for the paltry funds the state reluctantly gives in amounts so minuscule as to permit only an inadequate semblance of even a poor defense. For all these reasons, ladies and gentlemen, Miss Ahrens asked you, to accept the definition of those on death row as a cognizable class of socio-economically deprived, and she asks you to recognize the use of the death sentence as an act of social genocide. I am simply asking you to consider the question. Consider the question in the name of justice. Are we killing the weaker of the species? Do we kill our mistakes? Shall the financially strong and socially fortunate survive while the weak perish, just like the jungle animal kingdom? I'm Corey Zimmerman, and this is Spoon River Gothic. Spoon River Gothic is a production of Lone Bird Media in association with CZ Studio and Radio Verite. 
The show is produced by August Olson. Editing, directing, and producing by Corey Zimmerman. Audio mastering and engineering by E. Mastered. Research is done by Anne-Marie Cannon, Chelsea Mesa, and me, Jinra Illustrisimo. Spoon River Gothic is written and hosted by Corey Zimmerman. You can follow the show at czstudio.works and read the blog at spoonrivergothic.com. Show some love by leaving us a rating or review on Spotify, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And stay tuned for the next episode as we dive deeper into the Donald Bull case. Thank you for listening. This is Spoon River Gothic, narrative of a double homicide.